0: Welcome to Whiskey and International Relations Theory where Patrick Jackson and I riff on a relevant book or article for really uh, more time than is probably healthy. This is episode two and it's also part two of our blow-by-blow of Kenneth Waltz's classic theory of international politics. Before we get started, I've got some podcast news and notes. The first is that you can reach me and Patrick via Twitter. My handle is at DHNexon and his is at ProfPTJ. The podcast also has its own email address. That's whiskeyindigoromeo at gmail.com. It's also the case that you can now subscribe to the podcast via Apple and Spotify. That's new, so yay us. Our music is performed by Lyra Gemmel-Nexon, and the whole podcast is modeled after the far superior Game Studies study buddies, which you should go subscribe to. You won't regret it. I was recently on Van Jackson's Undiplomatic podcast. If you want to hear what a well-produced IR podcast sounds like, you should go check his out. All oh, right. before I forget, there's going to be a point in this podcast where the audio suddenly changes over, basically where I delete some stuff and I recorded alternative audio over it. It'll be very obvious when we get to it, and it's kind of embarrassing, so uh, I'll leave it as a surprise. Finally, Amazon thinks my new co-authored book, Exit from Hegemony, the unraveling of the American global order, ooh, that sounds ominous, is coming out on Kindle on February 28th. So, you know, if you are so inclined, go buy a copy. I'd appreciate it. So then, Anarchic Orders and Balance of Power, this is chapter six. This is where he just kind of lays out, right, how how it is that anarchy um, inclines states to be concerned about relative power.
1: And he has the best mm-hmm. argument I can think of mm-hmm. for why it makes sense theoretically to only have anarchy and hierarchy and not endlessly proliferate types mm-hmm. on page 115, 116. He yeah. you know, you ends up saying on the top of 116, you know, all categories have borders. And if we have any categories at all, we have borderline cases. Clarity of concepts does not eliminate difficulty of classification. Mm-hmm. That's one of those moments where I'm kind of like, yes, this is exactly right. If you're going to define the structure mm-hmm. of the system in such spare terms, endlessly proliferating categories about mm-hmm. types doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. Obviously, no system is a pure anarchy, and no system is a pure hierarchy. Mm-hmm. They're all mixed. But what's interesting is what is logically the case in the particular type, mm-hmm. and then you can see how it gets mixed in practice in particular cases. Mm-hmm. So that's a moment where I think he's he's very mm-hmm. very, very clear about mm-hmm. what he's doing.
0: Yeah. So he has this section on the virtues of anarchy. So right, we yep. So this is where he kind of lays out that you know he brings together anarchy. You know, it's that whole story we told at the beginning. Anarchy makes you makes states, makes the units in anarchy, whatever mm-hmm. they are. This can happen in domestic politics and civil wars, attuned to changes in relative power because changes in relative power potentially threaten their security. Right.
1: And Uh. even if they don't realize that that's what they should be attuned to, Mm -hmm. they're going to end up getting selected out of the system if they don't become attuned to it. It's a kind of evolutionary socialization logic. And again, again, I
0: don't know, because I'm not going to actually find it here. I've got it marked somewhere in the book, but um, he actually says at one point, he does not mean that states actually die. State death is really rare. What he really means is they lose their political autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Being selected out of the system just means not being a relevant great power, Um, you know, to be crude about it. Costa Rica is selected out of the system for Waltz right Mm -hmm. in the sense that it just it it can never hope to be a great power right Right.
1: he's absolutely clear he says Mm -hmm. many times throughout the book you have Mm -hmm. to write the history or you have to write an account of international politics in terms of the great powers Mm -hmm. you don't write it in terms of Mm -hmm. Micronesia or whatever Mm -hmm. Um,
0: so there's a lot of stuff here about he's, again, he's running this distinction further between national systems, and international systems, um, and he's qualifying it a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. you know, saying, look, I'm, I don't mean that there's never violence in domestic systems, and I don't, certainly don't mean there's no order in international systems, mm-hmm. um, uh, but that um, there's something about anarchy, as I said, that makes states attenuated to relative power. Right or creates structural dispositions for them to be uh, concerned about relative power, particularly relative military capabilities. And this kind of inclines a real politique yep. approach, which he talks about on page 117. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has some uh, stuff to say about um, fusions and balance of power theory, which essentially come down to the idea that balance of power theory, I mean, essentially what it comes down to is that balances of power can be understood as either intended or unintended outcomes of these pressures to care about relative power and ensure your own security. Uh-huh. Uh, that you don't need something like a balancer, a deliberate some you know, some actor doesn't have to deliberately balance power for this to happen. Right. They certainly don't have to be thinking about overall system wide balances, okay. right? You know, like supposedly the Congress system of the nineteenth century does. They just have to be thinking about their own security and you will eventually get to behavior that will approximate balancing behavior or produce a balancing equilibrium. Right. Whether or not uh, they intend to, and he's very explicit about that in places like 119 uh, and and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then he, in part three, you know, we're back to structural theories are plausible if we see if we see sort of patterns over time mm-hmm. when there's a lot of unit level variation, right? right? So it can't be the unit level variation that's explaining those
1: patterns if they're the same. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he's also very clear. Mm. Once again, yeah, this is actually pretty interesting methodologically. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah,
1: it's, it's also very clear once again that sort of that, that both on so what the expectations of the theory are, and then what you're supposed to do with those expectations. Mm-hmm. So the expectations of the theory, clearly, on on 124. Mm. Right. Balances of power recurrently form and states tend to emulate the successful policies of others. So those are the expected behavioral signs that the theory should be actually producing. Right. That should produce recurrent balances and it should reduce should produce these patterns of emulation, which is interesting because it's all done at the aggregate level. Mm -hmm. So it's not. This is not a theory. It's very clearly not a theory of individual states doing individual things and could not, therefore, be tested by Mm. looking at the behavior of individual Mm -hmm. states. The problem is then all the pieces of evidence that he produces in support of it are the individual doing of individual states. Yeah. So, you know, there are some... some, some, Next page. Remember,
0: careful judgment is needed.
1: That's right. Careful judgment. (laughs) Careful judgment is needed. That's right. Wasn't that point... Six or seven or something? It's on
0: 125. 125, yes. But he, he actually, but, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, says, you know, do not, it, we can't just use friction to explain yep. delays and balancing. What he actually says here good. is mm-hmm. that we need to use what we would now call um, uh, pro- causal process observation evidence. hmm Right. Which which is weird. Which is weird.
1: Which is weird because if it's really the case that what a systems theory does Mm -hmm. is explain recurrent outcomes without reference to the motivations and internal dispositions of the units, Mm -hmm. then I'm not quite sure what causal process evidence would actually give us about Mm -hmm. this and why would it matter if a particular set of deliberations or set of policies followed along the lines that the theory would predict. So that's a little strange. Mm -hmm. Um, With the example that he gives on the middle of 125, when he talks about the recurrence of balancing in bipolar systems in particular, he says, uh, you know, look, for instance, the state's making internal efforts to strengthen themselves, however distasteful or difficult those efforts might be. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, following World War II, the United States by rearming, despite having demonstrated a strong wish not to, by dismantling the most powerful military machine the, US had ever kno- the world had ever known; Soviet Union by maintaining men in arms, so on and so forth. The next sentence, though, the, the next paragraph: these examples tend to confirm the theory, which is the moment where, if you have any kind of philosophy of science consistency with what had been said earlier in the book, uh, you know, this is where the this is where your your alarm bells start going off because the idea that you can confirm a theory is something that waltz is perfectly fine with he's fine that you can find confirmatory examples though most of the people that he drew on in the philosophy of science part of the book would argue that you can't actually confirm theories you can only falsify them Mm -hmm. Um, but waltz throughout the book is going to provide primarily confirmatory evidence Mm -hmm. examples of where we see Mm -hmm. states behaving especially states behaving against their will in line with the ways that the structural pressures of the system in Waltz's theory should incline them to mm-hmm. behave mm-hmm. so there is a very strange way in which the theory which he's already admitted the theory highlights certain things and the theory calls attention to certain things so it's like calling attention to those things and then providing evidence that those things are there because your attention has been called to them is now confirmation of the theory so there's a very strange little methodological uh, slippage here.
0: Okay, so the other the other kind of highlight of this chapter, this is the kind of um, the use value stuff in the chapter yeah. that gets invoked a lot. Is this is where he he talks about balancing versus bandwagoning, mm-hmm. right? Balancing mm-hmm. is when you well, balancing is actually kind of hard to define, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, just <laughs> roughly for, for for Waltz, balancing comes in two forms: internal and external. Internal is you know, I, I fear somebody else's rising power as a state. Because states, I'm a state now, right? Hi, I'm a state, <laughs> and uh, so I build up my own military capabilities to offset that 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 gap. Mm-hmm. Um, external balancing is the formation of alliances. So what I do is I say, hey, you over there, if we kind of pull our resources for a while, we can block that person, that other state from from conquering us, as opposed to bandwagoning, which is. You know, basically, stronging siding with the stronger side here. That's all he defines it. There'll be a bunch of literature down the pike that that revisits these issues about about um, how do we understand balancing and bandwagoning. Maybe we'll read some of that. But that's and and that you know makes this kind of point that, that balancing should predominate in the international system. And uh, is this where he says I where he says you know if if we if bandwagoning predominated we'd see a world hegemony rather than an anarchy. Is that is that
1: here? Is that point there or is that is that maybe one of the later chapters?
0: maybe later as I, you know yeah. as we get as we get like an hour and 20 minutes into it there's a lot of redundancy here yeah. Um, yeah. so um but he does also so that's the the first point the second point is that he does make clear that this is not, so there's a debate between so-called defensive and offensive realists and the way that this is sometimes characterized is defensive realists think that states pursue security and offensive realists think that states really we're talking about great powers, maximize power. They like seek universal domination. And sometimes Gilpin is associated with offensive realism. Mm-hmm. John Mearsheimer self-describes self as, as an offensive realist. But the thing is that...
1: Bottom of 126.
0: Okay, right. So, yeah. But the thing is here that, that for Waltz, while the system does incline you to seek security, it allows for power maximization, mm-hmm. right? So states can pursue universal domination in the system. Uh, it's just not a very good idea. Right. Because then you provoke balancing coalitions and it's self-defeating. And if there's a policy recommendation of this book, and we'll see some of them later, it's don't go crazy and invade lots of places and try to maximize your power because that's going to fail. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's going to ultimately undermine your security. Right. Right. Um, So.
1: um, Now, the quote Dan was looking for earlier is on the bottom of page 126. hmm. Uh, If states wished to maximize power, they would join the stronger side and we would see not balances forming, but a world hegemony formed. Mm -hmm. So if there was a a world in which bandwagoning was the dominant strategy, then what you would get is hegemony.
0: The first concern of states, and this is where we get into trouble, the first concern, but not the only concern of states, is not to maximize power, but to maintain their position in the system. Mm -hmm. now this does raise problems if the system actually socializes really well if it has these effects we do get into the trap of why wouldn't anybody everybody seek security and if everybody seeks security then how do you then get balancing this is the schreller critique but you know honestly you know this is where you get into there's all this variation at the kind of unit level and agents and you get leaders who are really aggressive you know the system domestic systems toss up You know, Trumps and Bushes and um, Boris's, Boris's. Well, is he trying to maximize Brexit? Is not a way of maximizing international power. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, So there is this kind of broader issue about when we move into to, to the question of what are leaders actually about, what they're actually about, their own political survival, mm-hmm. then this, for Wallace that would just be kind of noise that mm-hmm. affects unit-level foreign policy, but that actually could change some of the ways he articulates, that actually has implications for some of the claims he makes in the theory and the yes. theoretical structure. Mm-hmm. But anyway, let's let's move on. So um, the next, so we get at the end, balances recurrently form. We know they recurrently form because they do. Incidentally they don't always recurrently work uh, but you know uh, but they do over time the system tends that way balance of power politics predominates and so his system's structural theory is structural realism and it's balance of power realism mm-hmm. right he doesn't say that but that's now we finally clearly established that in chapter six yes. <laughs> Um, 128 pages into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, we're supposed to put our arguments at the beginning and summarize them. Mm-hmm. Mm, not so much here. So, what did you think about the the next chapter? This is structural causes and economic effects. I, there's actually some pretty interesting stuff going on in here. I there think.
1: is. There is. I mean, there's 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 a fascinating discussion on the ambiguities of the term interdependence, which mm-hmm. is sort of entirely like. Could be just lifted mm-hmm. out of okay. the book. Let's just but, summarize it. So this but summarizing the chapter. Th- this itself, article you know,
0: does mm-hmm. like a t- couple different things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's well, this article is at at heart about polarity, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about structural variation by the number of great powers. Yep. And so it's concerned with how do we measure uh, the number of great powers to which he is totally blase, yep. uh, because his point is just like if I ask you what the great powers are, you're all going to pretty much come up with the same answer. This isn't that difficult. Right. And he used to do this exercise in his classes. He'd hand out and have you write down the five most important powers. And the point is that these were pretty much going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, maybe, right? But that's also then a dig at the idea that um, you can clearly quantify this stuff too. Well, um, but, it's,
1: but it's also a, a clear mm-hmm. reflection of how much this is rooted in a particular and not always, well, ever in well, it's acknowledged perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a very particular place from which this book is written there's this group that the the common sense of which is he presumes shared by his readers Mm -hmm. so there is a way that who was it that said that one of the reasons why waltz's book becomes so successful Mm -hmm. is because in many ways it sums up things that are kind of commonsensical to a lot of a lot of various readers
0: it it provides a a quote-unquote elegant explanation for something that a lot of people assume is true anyway Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um so um, you know we skipped over something, or maybe we didn't. I don't know. We've had some whiskey, and it's been a long time. Uh, but all the way back in on page eighty, in in chapter five, this mm-hmm. this point he makes. Uh, we we mentioned this, but we talked about it as if we're gonna get to it, and then we went right by it, which is that this notion that for waltz. Uh, structure is um, about relation and position, mm-hmm. right? So he, he's qu- drawing on SF Natal here who's actually also an important figure in the development of network analysis yeah. in some ways. At least that's what I remember being told when I took network theory. <laughs> so. And he says that there's this ambiguity because relation can be used both to mean the interaction of units, which are definitely for him not structural, and the positions they occupy with respect to one another, which is structural. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you abstract at the level, so you can only have a, you're only at the level of structure when you have this sort of positional abstraction. And great, in the number of great powers is a positional abstract. Uh, we don't know have to know anything about who occupies those positions, but it is you know this is you know gets him just spending a lot of time explaining why this thing which looks like a unit level attribute. How much national power a state has is actually a structural variable,
1: right? Mm-hmm. So, and 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 that makes sense. Yeah, if, if makes, we keep in mind, it's a formal abstraction, and if, if we keep in mind exactly what the explanatory scope of the theory is supposed to be. Yeah. The theory is supposed to explain the recurrence of balances mm. and the what was the other the socialization, the two the two things that he says that it's actually supposed mm-hmm. to do, uh, in one twenty four. Um, Right, so balances recurrently form and states tend to emulate the successful policies of others. Mm-hmm. If that's what we're trying to explain, mm-hmm. then in that sense the number of great powers in the system, mm-hmm. sure, isn't a unit level mm-hmm. question. If we're then try if we try to use that, that the structure of the system, bipolar, multipolar, how many poles there are in the system, to explain why any individual state mm-hmm. does either of those things, mm-hmm. then we've violated something, mm-hmm. right? Then, then there's a problem. Because then we would have to start talking about unit level
0: mm-hmm. attributes. So, I mean, essentially what then this chapter, this is a long chapter, but with yeah. this chapter, so having established questions of measurement, he then moves immediately to this idea, he starts to develop his argument that Systems with smaller numbers of great powers are basically kind of better, Uh you know, the, the rough logic is if you had a thousand equally powerful states, right, you know, everybody would be fighting one another all the time because there's just a lot of complexity in that system. So when you have a small number of great powers, they can manage the system. They don't have to be interdependent on one another in a way that might make them you know, more likely to attack if another state does something because they're bigger, they have economies of scale, they can be a as that is, they can fulfill most of their economic needs themselves if they need to. They can then take on roles as managers of the system because they have a stake in the system as it's currently oriented because that system is what gives them power. So, uh, you know, he runs through uh, those, he really sort of starts to run through those arguments. He does have this argument now that, that I remember... Everybody always, you know, this was the go to argument when we were in grad school in the 90s, where he really kind of critiques all the people who are going around in the 70s saying that the state is increasingly obsolete because there's economic interdependence, there's multinational corporations, and there are all these transnational actors around. And he says, you know, he, he, he rejects this on a bunch of reasons. He uses the standard example, which is that you had a lot of trade interdependence before World War I, a lot of monetary interdependence before World War I, and you still had a great war. So, you know, he at one point says, this is, uh, <laughs> this is like reading this literature, these people um, are you know they might as well be writing at the turn of the century, right? right? You know it's you know and it's it's kind of you know it's a lot of kind of detailed argumentation about scarcity and why you don't have to worry so much about scarcity. I mean it's mm-hmm. I don't know it's you know I don't know it's um it's kind of like arguments we have now, right?
1: Mm-hmm. But but again, what what strikes me throughout this is moments where. Mm. Moments where he doesn't do what I would have expected and what I would like to have remembered that he did, but but he doesn't. Mm. Um, This chapter and the succeeding two chapters... Mm. Are basically illustrative. Mm-hmm. So it's here. I have this theory that I have developed, and now I'm going to illustrate that theory with a series of different examples that I'm mm. able to find. Um, and look, it turns out that the great powers are less economically interdependent than the non great powers are, and therefore that counts as confirmation of my theory, mm. uh, which is which is fascinating. But then, sort of but it's also
0: then right this other. But it's doing dual work because that's yeah. also other. It's also building towards this argument about bipolarity yes. being the most stable system because you only of two great powers. Right. It's an issue with this book, right? Which is, and again, it's why even when it's not begging the question, it sometimes feels like it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it's why, I, I really understand now in retrospect why this is a hard book to read. Mm-hmm. It's because, you know, the, the organization is odd. Mm-hmm. So there is actually something in this chapter that I think is worth pointing out because it gets at the way in which he's using this chapter to con- confirm both to, things like interdependence are both a, for him, they're a logical implication of his argument mm-hmm. but he's also using that to confirm his arguments yes. by sort of drawing on these examples and some of those aren't even kind of empirical arguments they're like sort of counterfactual claims yeah. you know the U.S. could do this the, you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so he makes this argument that um, bipolarity you know so one of the reasons why bipolarity better remember is that it actually reduces interdependence right and when you're less interdependent you're more secure mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he says look Soviet Union, United States, not that economically interdependent. Right. Who can argue with that, right? I mean, and in, in my, I sort of wrote down here, um, are they not, inter, you know, the, the question that arises, are the United States and the Soviet Union not interdependent because bipolarity has made them not interdependent? Or are they not interdependent because they're trying to push two different orders in okay. economic systems? Right. And... I mean, heck if I know, right? I mean, in a sense, my inclination, given my priors, is to say that there's probably kind of both going on, right? But that primarily, you know, the fact that they're about different orders matters. You're looking skeptical. Yeah. I'm just trying to be generous, right? Mm-hmm. My, my basic position would be that it really matters that they're pushing two different kinds of order. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does kind of raise an interesting issue, right? Because if he's right, then... Um, as China continues to rise and as those military, if those military capabilities, or even if it stays where it is, because frankly, the economy is bigger in PPP terms than the United States now, mm-hmm. right? if uh, China begin really does make good on this indications that it will develop military capabilities commensurate with its economic strength, which would mean we would enter a bipolar system, militarily speaking. If he's right, then the kind of baby steps we're seeing towards economic decoupling by the trump administration and by the chinese also kind of in response to tariffs and things Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. that is a sign of where things will head Mm -hmm. right that if he's right bipolarity will mean that the united states and china will decouple even though there might be efficiency losses Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. uh if he's wrong and we look at things like just today there's a Wall Street Journal story that said that the Department of Defense had overruled these sanctions against Huawei because they were worried that if their own contractors couldn't sell components to Huawei, they couldn't stay in business and they wouldn't be able to build high-tech weaponry, yeah. right, interdependence. Uh, if that's more like what the future is going to look like, then it is the order issue. Then it is right. really then it is really significant that we have, uh, for the first time in, I don't know, uh, a long time, right, a a rival of the United States, or a potential rival of the United States, a power to rival that of the United States, whether or not it's actually rivalrous, that is you know, so that's highly integrated into the global economy. Uh-huh. right? And that would make the character of U.S.-Chinese relations really different than the Soviet Union. And that's sort of interesting, I think.
1: It is. That is. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I, I, I would, I still have... The hardest time that I have with this book is trying to figure out what it means to say that the structure of the system produces an effect. And so when, even with the story that you just told there, I would still look at that as different kinds of of order projects, whether it's a global order or a national order. Mm. Arguably, the Trump administration's issue is that they've adopted a very Mm. anti-global, very exclusive nativist nationalist way of framing what the United States' role in the world ought to be, and they're sort of proceeding like that. The consequence, and I think Waltz is very good on this, and this is how I would tend to Mm. read this, the consequence of stressing that kind of order project, slash identity articulation as being the motor that drives these things is that you can't have something like what waltz would call a systemic theory Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that's a great loss or as great a loss as waltz would argue that Mm -hmm. it is but i think he's absolutely right if we are going to suggest that the important things in international affairs are produced by national state projects uh transnational Mm -hmm. ideological and rhetorical coalitions whatever you want Mm -hmm. to characterize them as then by definition we would not have anything like a systems theory Mm -hmm. so and I think that's something that we should we should probably I don't know if we want to wrestle with it here but it's something that that I think that one should wrestle with when reading (laughs) Wolves
0: I want to point out is that what I found really interesting rereading this stuff, and it's sort of, you know, it's all this kind of like sort of relatively superficial, which is not a, a critique, he's running through a lot of stuff, kind of discussions of the economic situation in the 1970s and mm-hmm. what that means for various arguments, is that what he's ultimately right that one of the bottom-line arguments he's making here is that not only is economic independence not pacifying, it's dangerous, right, Mm -hmm. Um, because it threatens state security, but also that economic interdependence is not going to usher in liberal-topia post-nationalism, right, is essentially the very standard realist argument, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as he's making that argument, he has this interesting kind of point where he says, um, he's uh, citing R.D. McKenzie from 1927, from about the middle of the 19th century, the quicker transmission of ideas resolved in the words of R.D. McKenzie in centralization of control and decentralization of operation. As he put it, the modern world is integrated through information collected and distributed from fixed centers of dominance. Um, and then he likens this to the United States being kind of at a center of a bunch of industrial flows, right? And how that gives its power. Well, my colleagues, uh, my colleague at Georgetown. Here I meant to say Abe Newman, but instead I said his co-author, Henry Farrell. This is particularly embarrassing because Henry Farrell is not my colleague at Georgetown. He is at George Washington. And additionally, because Abe Newman has been a friend of mine since high school. So that's going on 30 years now. How's this? Really cool article in this foreign affairs piece and this book that's going to come out. I hope eventually with Henry Farrell on weaponized interdependence. Hmm. And part of their argument is you know you get interdependence where there's centralized, there's a central node that you can control, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that gives you um, that gives you asymmetric power, right? And that's part of the kind of the 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 power politics of interdependence. And you know, okay, mm-hmm. I sort of see it here. There are traces of all these things right. um, that that kind of show up. 40 years later
1: that those things have to be understood as Hmm. uh, functions of the states in which they are located Mm -hmm. right so this is his whole thing about how multinational corporations aren't actually multinational but they're actually national corporations with global markets Hmm. so there's a way in which he, he doesn't he doesn't want to say there are these nodes and it's mm. control of these nodes that's important. The nodes are located in states and they make the states mm. important.
0: Yeah, so. another thing, and I, I think we mentioned this beforehand, I don't think we mentioned it quite yet during the recording, that really struck me is because we, we still teach this theory, yeah. right? I mean, I just taught it the other day, but we always teach it really at the most abstract, simplified level. Mm-hmm. And because that, we have completely decontextualized it. Uh-huh. And one of the things that's very clear reading this book is that it's very much a product of the 1970s. And we'll get to the second reason why it's a product of the 1970s, but here one of the big reasons it's a product of the 1970s is that one of the things he's doing in these arguments is he's arguing that the United States is not becoming economically weaker, right? And that's important because, remember, 1970s are the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. A lot of people think that American economic hegemony is over. Right, which is the dominant way people. A lot of people. I don't know if it's dominant. It's the way a lot of people are understanding things. There is a real sense that America is on decline, and he's actually fight. He's actually arguing against declinist narratives about the United States, yep. which is yep. really interesting. Oh, he's yeah. Yeah. then talking about how we predict these things before. The U.S. is staying power. It's really big. It's really wealthy. Mm-hmm. Look, just recently, he says all these. We swept the Nobel prizes. Yes, we're so technologically capable. These arguments are mere images right. of arguments made now, mm-hmm. right? For why um, U.S. is bound to be unipolar, right? Another, or, or it's going to take a lot longer than people think for China to give the U.S. a real uh, run for its money. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the, the note I, I, I scratch down is that there's a, and there are a number of places where he basically says smaller is better in terms of the number of great powers, and bipolarity is the smallest because you cannot have hegemony. Right. Right. Because the logic of his argument, up to a point, suggests that monopoly <laughs> would be more stable than a duopoly if there isn't this balancing tendency that becomes overriding, which is the assumption here. Mm. And this is kind of Gilpin's critique. He says, you know, he says this is, oligo- this is oligopoly theory, and oligopolies are just not as stable, <laughs> right, as monopoly. Chapter eight. We're, we're getting to the end, mm-hmm. um, and this is where he talks about structural causes and military effects. And this is the ni- if, if the last chapter was kind of the nineteen seventies chapter about U.S. economic decline. This is kind of the chapter about detente and the Vietnam War.
1: Yes, absolutely, <laughs> right. absolutely.
0: So, what what would you say the kind of crux of his argument in this in this this chapter is? Mm-hmm.
1: We're continuing with the defense of, of bipolarity, mm-hmm. right? And so having, having a bipolar system reduces uncertainty. It allows for management of, of various kinds of military affairs. It also allows, he says on, on 175, the United States and the Soviet Union, like Duopolis and other fields, are learning gradually how to cope with each other. So the idea, and he talks about mature bipolarity yeah. from time to time, right? So which, the, is which is detente. Which is detente, exactly. <laughs> right. It's the idea that having consolidated their position relative to each other mm-hmm. and, parenthetically, relative to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So because you have the bipolar system is, yes, it only has two great powers, but it does have all these other powers in it. They're, just, mm-hmm. they're not important to the mm-hmm. system. So because there's no other sort of challenger, you have these two poles here and if the poles just learn to deal with each other then he suggests they can get along you can have coexistence you can have detente you'll have low levels of interdependence but that's fine because it actually allows for people to manage things on their own individual sides Um, but there's a paradox here there is Mm definitely
0: and the paradox is that he thinks that bipolar structures also incline the great powers to care too much about what's happening in the periphery, mm-hmm. to get involved in places like Vietnam, to think that everything right. is going to tip the balance of power, even though it obviously won't. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like we have to learn our way out of these structural dispositions.
1: <laughs> Gee, um, wait, wait, wait we Dan, learn isn't out, that impossible? If we
0: learn our way out of the structural dispositions, then we'll get the other half of the structural dispositions, and those are good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, he's well aware of this. I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, oh, yeah. he, he, he's. This is not. He's not like trying to hide anything yeah. here. Yeah. But it is no. really
1: no. For, was it 185? Force <laughs> is least visible where power is most fully and adequately present. Mm-hmm. So you know, the poles should learn that they're just powerful enough, and they should stop having to throw their weight around. They don't need recourse. They need what is has he Non recourse to force. Yeah,
0: and then all he's right. back to the U.S. as a leading country. We're so powerful. Why do we worry about Vietnam? Why do we worry about these other things, right? right? That we uh, shouldn't. We should. People should not, who, we should he he keeps scoring on people. Who say, well, other, everybody else is growing faster. He's like, well, of course they're growing faster because yep. they were all destroyed in World War II. Right. We don't have to grow as fast, right? right? Um, and so
1: we are where we are, and um, that's and that's all there is to it.
0: Um, you know, and and other kinds of stuff. Modern. He also argues on page one eighty one that our tech we've locked in a tech advantage. Yeah, <laughs> where the great powers have right. Yes. Because because modern weaponry is so research intensive, in, intensive that you have to be really big to 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 actually compete. Mm-hmm. And he's actually the mm-hmm. argument here is essentially that we've reached a point in human history where you need continental powers mm-hmm. if you're going to be great powers. And part of the reason why things are going to be stable is yeah, only got two: the United States and the Soviet Union. There are no other continental
1: powers. So,
0: Europe could become one and theory but you know that's probably not going to happen for a bunch
1: of reasons mm-hmm. and it's firmly in the orbit of the united states well that's and, one of the reasons <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why it's right. not going to, right and so
0: even though out. the u.s might appear to push economic integration at some point we'll kind of figure this out mm-hmm. yep. that this is bad for us mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And he also has these sort of interesting things to say about... Well,
1: we you have, mentioned, you mentioned Vietnam. Yeah. I, mean, the, the fast, I, I find the, the take on Vietnam is fascinating, 190, 191. Yeah, yeah. Right? The international political insignificance of Vietnam can be understood only in terms of the world structure. America's failure in Vietnam was tolerable because neither success nor failure mattered much internationally. Right. I mean, I think the Vietnamese would probably Beg to differ about that. But victory would not make the world one of American hegemony. Defeat would not make the world one of Russian hegemony. No matter what the outcome, the American-Russian duopoly... Mm-hmm. would endure mm-hmm.
0: except for we don't realize that so we behave right. stupidly right, right. but if, um, we, if
1: we did it right then mm-hmm. we would realize that in fact just mm-hmm. sitting back and mm-hmm. not getting involved mm-hmm. which is not dissimilar from Morgenthau's argument against mm-hmm. vietnam like the u.s it's a, this this wasn't a vital national interest the u.s had no reason to be going in there mm-hmm. um, but it's a much softer critique of vietnam mm-hmm. than it is than Morgenthau's certainly
0: mm-hmm. he also he actually talks about you know it's one thing to to conquer another country, it's another to govern it. The problem in Vietnam was that we couldn't nation build essentially. We couldn't we couldn't force government institutions. I mean you know, just so you know, if you don't, Waltz was vehemently opposed to the Iraq War. Mm -hmm. Right? And same argument. Doesn't affect our security. Bernie Sanders was talking about how Two worst decision blunders were Vietnam and Iraq. And, you know, clearly if you are Mm -hmm. old enough, this kind of looks the same, except for Vietnam is obviously much more costly in American lives Mm -hmm. um, because Mm -hmm. we weren't so good at standoff blowing up other people that right. so that's kind of chapter eight the united states is doing just fine um
1: and it needs to relax
0: and needs to relax um and but but this is you know this is gonna be a little bit of a problem because structural pressures will cause us to tend to overestimate the importance of these peripheral conflicts and to get into these kinds of stupid crises So, the management of international affairs, the last chapter in the book.
1: On only, the, only the powerful, only the great powers, and yeah. only really if there's just two of them, so if it's a bipolar system, yeah. we are in a structural position that allows them to take responsibility for the management of the whole. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, the argument here seems to be that if you are one of two poles, mm-hmm. you are... You have no disadvantage with, there's no collective action problem with you sort of doing things because so so many things happen in the world that that you would actually benefit from putting out the effort for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you go ahead and do them. If you're a multipolar system, that's not going to work quite the same way because you're worried about coalition balancing against others and so on. The stability of bipolarity allows Mm -hmm. these firmly established states at the top to then... Take over and and, and uh, at least take care of some of the common interests of the system. Now it doesn't get his list. His litany of what doesn't get addressed is, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, bottom of two oh nine: poverty, population, pollution, and proliferation. You know, military stalemate between the United States and the Soviet Union may permit those things to stay there for long periods. Who will deal with them? You know, and nobody. <laughs>
0: And uh, there's also there's, – there are a couple of other interesting moments. So like on 199-200, he says that the United States has like two ways of justifying its actions abroad. Mm-hmm, and the first mm-hmm. is we can exaggerate the Russian threat, as he puts it, and that's the domino theory of Vietnam. The second is we can engage in a grand crusade of world order building that <laughs> – Yeah, he's not too big on that either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. he says it's kind of always what, like, big powerful states do, and it's, you know, always kind of Mm self-interested. But he also says, you know, that he he actually kind of says, you know, he also talks about how U.S. management hasn't been all bad, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. U.S. has done a lot of good things when it's been relaxed. It's fascinating to end this book on, you know, kind of detente rocks when a year later we're going to be entering the Second Cold War.
1: <laughs> but there's an interesting tension right at the very end yeah. of the book because he says okay, it's a bipolar system, but the U.S. is still the dominant power. Right. So there's a weird way in which, no, the United States is, economically the United States is far and away the leading power. If the leading power does not lead, the others cannot follow. All nations may be in the same leaky world, boat, but one of them wields the biggest dipper. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating because if it's a bipolar system and we're supposed to be settling into it in the ways of detente, but then we're also supposed to be leading as the single pole that's going to take care of these things. There's a, there's a tension in there that, that so arguably some of the Second Cold War stuff is then about yeah. blowing that tension up. So,
0: I mean, look, the, the, this is a chronic problem, right? We, and we actually sometimes do this without even blinking, right? We talk about the Cold War as, when we're talking particularly about the international economic order, talk about it as U.S. hegemony. And then when we talk about it in, you know, when we go to realism, we're talking about it as bipolarity. Well, which is it? Yeah. I mean, one answer, right, is that, well, in the economic sphere, it's U.S. hegemony, but in the military sphere, it's more disputed. But there's some tensions there, actually, with what hegemonic stability theory and hegemonic order theory would have suggest. It's the same thing with the U.K., right? The U.K. is supposed to be the global hegemon in the 19th century, but in Europe, you know, it can't ever conquer europe right that's right. not something it has the capability to do it's mm-hmm. it's one power amongst many right. and so there is this kind of tension and there are ways of resolving it one way of resolving it is just to do gilpin right this is a power you know wolforth and schweller or schweller and wolforth make this argument when they're trying to defend the, the idea that realism doesn't like go out with the cold you know that essentially the end of the cold war collapse so Union doesn't like leave realism completely useless that what we're talking about are power transition dynamics right so that the united states is a global hegemon which is being challenged by the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union is never big enough, economically efficient enough right. to really keep up.
1: Is that Rex Harrison argument.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and then you can make a sign of similar argument about the nineteenth century. You know, the power terms are closer. Right. Who's doing the power transition? That's going to kind of maybe it's France for a while, then it becomes Germany, right? You know, but uh-huh. Uh-huh. whatever. That's not really that. Then it's the United States, or yeah. maybe not. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. But, but
1: but yeah, I, I mean, and that's certainly that's certainly one way in which one could sort of try to try to resolve the tension. That mm-hmm. there's another way to do it, which I. Mm-hmm kind of hinted at before, which is sort of abandon the idea of a system level mm-hmm. and talk about these as practices of ordering. Mm-hmm. And then you could say there is a bi- practice called bipolarity mm-hmm. and there's a practice called hegemony mm-hmm. and we can look at those two as projects and see how those things and tensions between those kind mm-hmm. of manifest themselves in, in in particular cases. It would be, it would come, and I think Waltz is very clear and I think you're absolutely right about this, it comes at the cost of a certain kind of international theory. Mm-hmm. There cannot be kind of theory of international politics that waltz would like Mm -hmm. us to have if Mm -hmm. we go down that road
0: well as you know my one of my big issues with this book is that um, he thinks that you cannot treat interactions among units as structural because they cannot be positional. he says they're too ephemeral basically but you know there are ways of standard network analysis right would say that that's structure Mm -hmm. right and we can get plenty of positional and relational analysis and the fact that it's more dynamic, well, that's just an empirical issue. Yeah. Maybe it's dynamic. Uh-huh. Well, that means structural factors might be more dynamic, right? So there are lots of ways in which you can loosen these assumptions, in which he, you know, in which you don't have to to buy into that argument. Right. And I, I do think I want to. I, wanna, I have a kind of wrap up question in a second, but you know, I do think that you know the, the one of the things that it, besides the sort of some of the stuff we talked about. I mean, the, the, I do come out of this reminded of how important this book is to the trajectory of what happens in the 80s and the 90s international relations theory right essentially this becomes the argument to use as your straw man and so everybody takes it and builds their own critiques off of it in broadly speaking even, you know, critical theory, right? I mean, I mean, critical theory, which should be the most divorced, is still arguing with this stuff, oh, right? Yeah. And I, I don't want to speak for all the... I don't have any idea what a survey of critical theoretic literature in the period would look like, but I know that realism is a very consistent topic of criticism in Jim George's work and... and Richard Ashley. Ashley's work, mm-hmm. you know, and Richard Ashley's probably his best-read piece is his critique of Waltz, right? And Ruggy, you know, he his critiques of Waltz lead to an entire kind of... New study of international change and state formation within IR, right? right? And constructivism is all about saying, hey, the early constructivists are very much about saying, you've got it wrong, right? You can have roles and norms and rules and structure, and agents can be much. We we don't have to separate them out so much, right? To have better theories of of how agency and structure interact, and and so could all of that, you know, neoliberalism, institutionalism develops kind of as a critique of Waltz, and then ultimately just becomes open economy, you know, it sort mm-hmm. of, you know, moves on into just doing its own thing. But there is a lot of ways in which, you know, it, it's hard to understand why people are doing what they're doing. There's a, I had, a, I, I'm supposed to be doing this essay with Julian Go for an international political sociology handbook on on relationalism.
1: Hey, I have a piece in that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, the, the the cool thing about this handbook is they're pairing IR people with non-IR people and, or or pairing IR people with IR people they don't agree with and seeing what happens. <laughs> There's a way in which we were talking about the fact that that a lot of the way we talk about international structure and international order is really Parsonsian, very. right Norms, very. rules, institutions, right? It's sociological I mean to be more generous, it's sociological institutionalist, right? Mm-hmm. but it is it is very Parsonsian. We don't quite have pattern variables, but we come kind of close, right. And for him, as a kind of relational sociologist, this is just bizarre, right? Why are you, you know, for him, why are you hung up on these things? right? Why is everything, you know, norms against material factors, all that kind of stuff? And his answer is, you know, because you're still obsessed with realism, right? You know, you're still trying to argue with this approach and particularly, I think, with with structural realism and with the people who have continued structural realism on uh, in, in various ways. So it's sort of, it accounts for these particular intellectual trajectories.
1: And it also accounts for, and the, with the chapter that I'm writing for that particular book with Charlotte Epstein. Um, It accounts for the weird way in which mainstream Anglophone IR thinks about structure and equates structure with materiality in very strange ways. Mm -hmm. And even when then first-wave constructivists start trying to talk about ideational structure of Mm -hmm. the international system or normative structure of the international system, it's still a structure that behaves very much like Waltz's structures are supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. and is supposed to explain the same kinds of things. So there's a very interesting uh, way there's a legacy of this book yeah. even for people who violently disagree with it. A lot of the the analytical categories remain.
0: Right. I, I, there's a stylized version of this you know Waltz actually doesn't talk a lot about material stuff. And, no. You know, for him these are just military capabilities, mm-hmm. right? But there's a stylized explanation for this which is that So theory of international politics is doing a kind of very modified hodgepodge of structural functionalism and cybernetics and other kinds of systems theories. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s and 90s, some of the people who are blowing open constructivism, not all of them, basically are finding authors who they can deploy against waltz. And what those authors, a lot of those authors are either social theorists who are critical of Parsons. Or there's social theorists who are trying to reconstruct the Parsonsian project right. along non-functionalist better lines—Giddens, Archer, that mm-hmm. sort of thing—or mm-hmm. concerned with the, I think, sociologists have to be concerned with these issues again, but they have to do it better and differently, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of running these arguments from social theory against Waltz that are, because they, they sort of fit, they sort of—you can see how they line up—but they they don't have a lot of attention to materiality the way that we tend to talk about an IR, right They don't They don't the same things with material that we equate with an IR. And I think a lot of what happens is that yeah, it becomes ideas and essentially it becomes a culture. So this the, the old conception of, this, of the social and culture as being analytically distinctive, mm-hmm. whether or not they should be, Right. This kind of drops out. Right. We wind up with all these sociocultural phrasings, if you read that work. And, uh, you know, actually part of Archer's argument is you can't conflate these things. Right. But that means that we don't really appreciate until fairly recently that you can do relational and positional analysis without doing what Waltz is doing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is stylized. It's unfair to people. It's not really True that other people figured this. You know, other people figured this out earlier, but it, I think it does kind of track the overall arc of this yeah. kind of work, right? You know, we, we we get we start getting into tools like either network analysis or the use of network analytics. We start getting into field theory, mm-hmm. actor network theory. It's really the first time that you have a lot of people who are thinking in positional and relational terms in ways that are kind of weirdly in the same ballpark, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? As Waltz.
1: Right, But without the idea that yeah. you have to have those structural elements specified in a way mm-hmm. that is universally constraining and produces mm-hmm. absolutely uniform effects. Exactly so you end up with much more looseness in different structural components and how they might be able to combine and concatenate with each Mm -hmm. other, So, which is not something that would fit Waltz's very spare definition of theory because as we started out at the very beginning of this conversation, everything for Waltz is ultimately tied back to these empirical generalizations, which are the laws, which are the only things that are out there to be explained, Mm -hmm. as opposed to if he sort of hadn't made that move, if instead explanation were to be thought of as being about the explanation of particular kinds of, outcomes Mm -hmm. in a counterfactual sense why we got this one rather than that one Mm -hmm. that opens up an entirely different realm methodologically where these different theoretical components can be combined in in different sorts of ways Mm -hmm. but that was never waltz's target
0: the the other thing i think um, it's worth noting here like we talked about constructivism we talked a little bit about neoliberal institutionalism which really doesn't really exist as such anymore but the, uh, the other obvious reason thing is that there are a lot of realists out there there aren't as many as there are people who are working on different kinds of theories. In fact, most people don't even associate themselves with isms anymore. But you know, it is. You know, if you want to understand what's going on in realism, right? You gotta, you gotta understand Waltz to some degree. So a lot of neoclassical realism sort of is initially configured as a critique of Waltz. But as uh, you know, I think Stacy and I have shown, and Brian Rathman have shown. It really is just structural realism to some degree, right? Because yeah. you're, you're basically the pro- the project looks at how shifts in relative power are are sort of processed through domestic level factors to produce foreign policy, and that's very consistent with a Waltzian mm-hmm. view. Although mm-hmm. he might be skeptical of of how general those theories could ever be. Clearly, Mearsheimer has sort of displaced. Waltz, as a target for sort of big structural realist theory, but you know he's clearly kind of in dialogue with this approach. Um, and, and as you as you pointed out, right in the policymaking world, realism remains a, a kind of you know remains a kind of baseline language, right. uh, and people are aware of, of realist scholars. But maybe that's only because we continue to teach them. So it might be circular. So that's that's my <laughs> question, right? I think we probably both agree that we would we will continue to talk about structural realist theory in our intro classes for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. Right, that we're not gonna not gonna banish it. But should we assign this book? Would you assign this book? Do you assign this book? I don't
1: at the undergraduate level. Yeah. um, I mean, at the undergraduate level, I don't distinguish between flavors of realism. I assign Machiavelli, and Mm -hmm. we talk about basically realpolitik. Mm -hmm. Um, I do mention, I'd introduce some language about polarity Mm -hmm. at at a certain point, just to get them thinking about that. And frankly, we do that through the modified form of risk that we play Mm -hmm. in class, where I do a bipolar and a bipolar world. Um, But... uh, I would assign it to... I shouldn't have
0: been dismissive of that. There are plenty of people who would probably find that more interesting than everything we talked about. But go uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it, we do a whole. We could do a whole thing on uh, diplomatic risk at some point. Okay. Um, but um, I, would assign it, I would assign it to PhD students. But I would assign it to PhD students the same way that I would assign... Uh, after hegemony mm-hmm. or uh, or even or or get that car mm-hmm. here is an important landmark in the internal history of the discipline mm-hmm. it is something that people argued with in anglophone IR largely conceived of as a subfield of political science in the United States that group was dominated by this like this becomes a a gateway through which all of this set of of ir theorizing kind of passes so whether one is agreeing with it or whether one is disagreeing with it Mm -hmm. so i think it's important to make sense out of a lot of these debates is it important for making sense out of what's going on in international affairs (laughs) well let me just fall back on what you said before about about the vocabulary Mm. right there is a way that these books provide terms that get recirculated and become part of this common vocabulary mm-hmm. that we all end up using. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Waltz coined a number of terms and phrases that, that mm-hmm. remain in circulation, I think it's useful to, to mm-hmm. sort of see where they where they originally came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not a Waltzian, mm-hmm. either in the methodological sense of wanting a theory that does what Waltz says a theory should do, or in the, the theoretical sense of thinking that the polarity of the system is the single most important factor about Mm. how international affairs are structured. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know that there's a lot of of explanatory value. I think there's historical value here. Mm. The other thing that I think is fascinating about this is reading it to see how he makes the argument, where he could have made it less well. well he could have made it better where he didn't do as good a job as, as he would have liked to but in some of the the ways that he sets things up mm-hmm. the study the whole first six chapters that we just went through and the fact that the argument kind of slowly emerges through what almost looks like a lit review mm-hmm. but it shows up this is a very political theory style of writing mm-hmm. um and that seeing how he's able to do that it's like yeah it's got a foreshadowing and it kind of pulls it out of these different critiques and you arrive at a place like oh okay but then turning around and saying, no, why do I find that compelling? Okay, well, let's examine the steps mm-hmm. that, he, that he sort of went through to do
0: this. So, you're sort of uh, the rhetoric the of rhetoric, theory?
1: The rhetoric of theory. I think um, there's, there's something really interesting okay. there about that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But those would be, yeah. honestly, the only reasons I would teach.
0: So, uh, we should close this out soon. But, uh, you know, uh, when, I, when I announced that we were going to do this on Twitter because... That's the way I roll, you know. We got some pushback from our some of our good friends because that's the way they roll, right? And I got maybe got a little salty because that's the way I roll. Um, but um, but the pushback was basically, you know, by even talking about Wallace and choosing as the first book for this, we're kind of reaffirming and solidifying a kind of intellectual history of the discipline, which is bad, right? Because it elevates this work, and this work is in a lot of people's views done damage you know it's done damage some people think that it, it took realism in the wrong direction even many many, many even many realists now you know a, mm-hmm. there's a subset of realists Bill Wolfworth who say we, we kind of should have been doing Gilpin right mm-hmm. not doing waltz so I mean there is something to be said for like you know uh, so there's a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of continuing to keep it on the canon uh, to me that doesn't bother me because I actually find I mean I don't know again if I would assign the whole book, but I actually find the theory intellectually interesting. It's not that I agree with any of it, but I, I think I find its architecture right, <laughs> and it, it's it's very explicit kind of scope, kind of fun to play with. Mm. If that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, there there is I get what you mean. There there is something there there is something kind of compelling about okay. about that. I do think though that any any real evaluation of this would have to come with a a real appreciation of its blind spots Mm -hmm. and the limitations of the perspective and as we've said throughout this conversation the kinds of things that he appeals to as commonsensical which are commonsensical among a certain group and that's interesting that it's commonsensical among that group but there Mm -hmm. are other kinds of common senses there are other approaches there are other Mm -hmm. uh, ways of trying to cut into this material Material of international affairs or national politics, hmm. um, which he's not especially interested in doing. So for me, hmm. reading this as kind of a programmatic, logically purified statement of a certain point of view hmm. Hmm. makes sense. But doing that suggests that there are others that then would need to be elaborated and we need to sort of look at what those yeah. other things are. We gotta make sure that we, we don't lose sight of that. Okay, I agree. There there is a danger of focusing too much on the canonical things. The only other thing I would say is This was a book that I think for both of us was kind of important when we were in grad school. It was important to our intellectual formation as IR people. Like we cut our teeth reading it and going bah, and writing things against it. And I remember us having long arguments about this. The story I told
0: you is the story of us. Yes,
1: there we go. (laughs) Surprise. No, but that, but that. This is this is. uh, You know, yes, this is. It's a little self indulgent for us to look back at some of these these sort of things. But um, but at the same time, right? We're writing what we know.
0: I want to say one thing because I think I'm gonna get in trouble. We've been so focused on kind of waltz and realism that whenever I've talked about power transitions, I've mentioned Gilpin. Well, there is an entire older tradition of power tra- called power transition theory. And people like Organsky and Kugler yeah. people who Waltz goes after because they're doing statistics and also because they think you know hegemony they think concentrated power is more stable, that you know, single systems with single dominant powers are more stable. And that tradition, it's funny, because that tradition, you know, basically, by the time that the the distinctions start to drop away and, you know, in terms of the the walls, they're making the same exact arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, Just one of them comes out of political economy and one of them comes out of uh, peace science uh, and and, and related fields. So, okay, uh, bottom line, we may have to split this into two episodes. We'll see what we do. But uh I certainly had fun. Maybe uh next time we do it later so we can have more Scotch. I think so. Um Good plan. Uh, I think uh we we are gonna at least do one more episode mm. and I think we decided that next time we're gonna do uh Cynthia Enlo's. Yeah, Bananas speeches
1: and bases. Right. So which, for me, was a book that I read in undergrad and mm. was one of the first books that I read that, that uh, sort of told me that studying mm. international relations would actually be kind of a fun thing. Mm-hmm. So,
0: And our aim is to do this uh, kind of, what, every three to five weeks? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But, you know, life can interfere. We're old and have responsibilities. So, um, <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. Hope yes. you enjoyed it. All right.